Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Malachi, if you would. Last book of the Old Testament. When was the last time you had a, a good old fight with your spouse? I, kn- I know we just came through a somber moment, but that's what I have in my notes, so we're going to start there. I'm, I'm not talking about abusive. I'm not talking about fist flying. I'm talking about a good, hard conversation about the difficult topics in life with your spouse, with a family member, children, parents. I feel like as a parent, I have this conversation with my kids all the time. Maybe for you it was Monday when you were late to work because you couldn't find the car keys and you blamed it on your spouse and then you asked the kids and then it turns out it was in your pocket. You ever done that? Right? Or maybe it was Wednesday and you totally miscommunicated the schedule. You didn't punch it into your day planner. And then it turns out you had to be at an oil change, but you also had to be at music lessons, but your spouse also needed the car because they had plans and it was just a mess. Or maybe it was this morning on the drive-in. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Maybe this is a really bad way and too sensitive to start a message. But this is how the book of Malachi is designed. It's, it's an argument. It really is. It's eight questions, eight accusations back and forth from God the Father to his people Israel, the children of Israel. It's a father having a difficult conversation with his kids about the hard topics. And he starts out by saying, I love you. And then his kids say, well, how have you loved us? We haven't seen you love us. Why don't you prove it, God? That's the kind of conversation that we're talking about today. You know, the people had returned to the land. It's like 100 years after they've returned to the land, somewhere in the 4th century BC. But the people hadn't returned to God. They were physically where they were supposed to be, but they weren't spiritually where they were supposed to be. How many people know you can come back to church but what you really need to do is come back to God. You can be sitting in the right spot, but you're not living in the right place, right? That's what we're going to talk about today. The people had returned to the land, but they hadn't returned to God. That's the story of Scripture. God is constantly inviting his people back. 4,000 years of history throughout the Old Testament, 1,000 years of the Old Testament being recorded The people had constantly walked away from God, and he's continually drawing them back and inviting them back, redeeming his people, buying them back. That's the storyline of Scripture. You know, the only reason we're here today is by the grace of God. You can see it throughout the Old Testament. God didn't have to give Adam and Eve a second chance. God didn't have to give Noah all that heads up before the rain started to fall. He could have threw the plan in his direction as the floodgates opened, right? God is a God who provides for his people time and time again throughout the Bible. You know, God didn't have to keep your car on the road on the way in this morning. God didn't have to keep you from falling ill this week. God didn't have to encourage your child to make the right choice this week. But it's the grace of God. And you might say, well, my child made the wrong choice this week. My car did go off. I got a fender bender. It's it's in the garage. It's going to cost thousands of dollars. Maybe you did get ill this week. I was talking to my friend Tom through text this week. And his mom, just a few weeks back, a month ago, was in a car accident with a semi-truck. T-boned the car. Uh, she, She was bruised. She was a little banged up. A lot of muscle soreness. But listen to this. In the act of all of that, taken to hospital, being checked out by doctors, they determined that it was more than likely she would have a stroke in the next few days if she had not been checked out by doctors and had some help in that area. Sometimes God's grace looks like a semi-truck, right? God's grace in our life. The only reason we're here, the only reason we have anything is because God's grace in our life. I love this verse. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. 
How many people have heard the name Jehovah Jireh? Maybe you heard that song in Sunday school, Jehovah Jireh. I won't sing the whole song. But it means the Lord, my provider. Jehovah means the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the true God of the Bible, the true God of the Israelites, Jehovah. And Jireh means my provider. And it comes from Genesis chapter 22. You remember Abraham and his, his son Isaac that God had promised and blessed Abraham and Sarah with in their old age, like 100 years old. They give them this son. And then God tests Abraham's faith and says, why don't you climb up this mountain, sacrifice your son, be willing to give it all up for me. You know that your son is a blessing for me. Why don't you give him back to me? And they're walking up the hill, and Isaac's no fool, right? He looks around, and he says, look, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the offering? Where's the animal for the sacrifice? And I love this. Abraham turns to his son, a father to his son, and he says, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. Jehovah Jireh. And he gets up there, and you see, Abraham knew God enough to know that God wasn't just testing his faith. Abraham was testing God's provision. God was testing Abraham's faith, and in turn, Abraham saying God is going to provide. Abraham is testing God's provision. And he gets up, he's about to offer his son, he's laying it all on the table, giving it all to God. He is fully committed, and the ram is caught in the thicket by his horns. God provides a lamb. Abraham names that location Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. On the mountain of the Lord is where God provides. Genesis 22. That's what I want us to be thinking about. That's the characteristic and the attribute of God that I want us to have in the forefront of our mind as we look through the book of Malachi, that God is Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. Everything we have is from his hand. We don't own any of this. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's all from God's hand. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's get right into it because I have way too much material and we need to move along. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi's name means my messenger. And we're going to hear that term three times through the course of the book. And it's to Israel, specifically to Israel. We would do well to remember that as we're reading through the Old Testament, when God is speaking directly to his children, Israel, we can draw applications, we can draw implications and truths and principles from God's word but this isn't specifically written to us. This is written to God's Old Testament covenant people, the true descendants of Abraham. Now, spiritually, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we get to be spiritual children of Abraham. We're about to step into the New Testament just next week, and we're going to be talking about the disciples, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. We're going to get to Peter and Paul. And Peter and Paul are the guys in whose stories and testimony we see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and the family of God jump from the Jews to include the Gentiles. We're going to get there in the story. But this is specifically to God's covenant people, Israel, in the Old Testament. You ready for verse 2? There's eight questions, eight accusations through the book. This is the first one right here. Question number one. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. I love how God starts this. I have loved you. Isn't that the message of the Bible? That God loves people. God loves mankind. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, like a snot-nosed little kid, how have you loved us? Prove it, God. God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? So let's dig into it a little bit. Esau I have hated. Now I'm resting and relying on some really smart people who study the Bible and are commenting on this verse. And what they have to say is that this is not, this is not positive. This is relative. In relation to Jacob, Esau is hated. In relation to the blessing that Jacob received, Esau received little blessing. Now, if you remember the story, because we're doing the journey through the Bible, you remember Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers. Esau was the guy out in the field hunting. Jacob liked to dwell in tents and cook with his mom. Esau comes in from hunting, and he says, man, I'm famished. I'm going to die if I don't get some food. And Jacob's there boiling some nice lentil stew. 
Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. And here we see the fallout from that. God's blessing is removed from Esau's descendants because Esau gave it all up for instant gratification instead of delayed blessing. He gave it all up. Now, I have a number of other verses we could look at, and if you want to talk about it later, by all means do that. There's some good ones here, but I'm going to skip all that to say God says you don't believe that you're my chosen people and that I love you. Why don't you look around? Look at the people who don't in my blessing. Look at the people who don't have a relationship with me. Look at the hopelessness. Look at the purposelessness in their lives. You have my blessing. You are my people. They don't receive the same blessing because they gave it away. They chose pleasure in the moment instead of blessing for eternity. You know, it's your choice to accept God's love. Do you realize just how much God loves you? Last Sunday, um, Josh was the worship leader, and he was leading a song called How He Loves Us. And I pulled him aside after the service, and I had to tell him this, because I just felt like God was impressing on my heart as we were singing that song. It was one of the rare moments where my daughter Jade actually wanted to hug me and actually wanted to be with me. So I'm holding her, and she's got her arms around my neck and her face pressed against mine, and I'm singing about God's love. And God just impressed on my heart. You know how much you love your daughter. I gave up my son for you. I gave my one and only begotten son for you. Do you want to know how much God loves you? Look at the cross. Look at the fact that he gave up his son for you. The cross is the pinnacle picture of God's love for us, not to mention all the blessings and graces in our life when we trust Christ as Savior, the abundant life, the eternal life that he gives to us. Praise God for his love for us. James 1 and verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, every good thing in our life is a gift from God. Next time you feel the warmth of the sunshine or you feel the embrace of a child or you get to taste mama's good home cooking, you better believe that God loves you. He could have made this creation bland and black and white, but instead he infused it with smell and color and taste and sound. And we get to enjoy his blessings and his grace in his life day after day. God loves you. Don't question it. Accept it. Receive it. Embrace it. Second question. That should have been the end of the conversation right there, but as, as you would know, uh, logical arguments with children don't always work, right? Maybe when they get older, maybe. Is there any hope out there? No? Okay. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honors his father. God's a father to Israel. And a servant, his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. That's a big claim. But you say, how have we despised your name? Prove it. Verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. God responds with two specific examples. Look at the first one. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor? Try, try and pay your taxes with a, a half-sick, half dead animal, says the Lord of hosts. You know, the people are back in the promised land. Ezra had reinstituted temple sacrifice and worship, but the people were doing the bare minimum. This, the, the least amount of effort attempt to follow the law in their interpretation. They were looking at their herds and their flocks, and they were thinking, okay, I don't want to give up that animal. It's my prized animal. That one won an award at the state fair. I'm not going to give that one up. What about that one? Oh, that one just broke its leg. Let's hurry and get that one to the temple. It's not going to be much good longer. We'll use that for a sacrifice. It won't cost us anything. And to make matters worse, the priests at the temple, who are supposed to be upholding God's name in righteousness and holiness and glory and sovereignty, they were saying, yeah, that'll do. That's good enough. What is that? Is it, is it missing an eye? 
Is that a growth? Is it missing a leg? Yeah, that'll do. That's good enough. That's good enough for our God. Junk for Jesus. Right? The second way the people were polluting God's name was through the teaching of the priests. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The people should seek instruction from his mouth. He is the messenger. That's the Hebrew term Malachi, the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. You know what? As a pastor, I take declaring God's word very seriously. And to be honest with you, and maybe tell you more than you need to know, I'm almost sick to my stomach every Sunday when I get to stand up here and declare God's word. Because I feel the weight of God's call and the responsibility in this. And how easily I could get it twisted and skewed. You know, James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That sends chills down my spine. You know, it's a serious business to stand up and declare God's truth. And these priests, they weren't putting any care or caution into it. That's good enough. That's good enough for God. You know, in the Bible, it says that if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, then you are a believer priest. You are an ambassador. You carry the name of God. You carry his banner of love everywhere that you go. What are your words and actions teaching people about what you believe God to be and who you believe Jesus to be and how worthy your God is based on how you act and how you talk? What do your words say about Jesus? Is it one minute on social media or you're posting pictures from Sunday and, hey, check out my church, we love to praise God, and then the next minute you're posting pictures and a rant about Canadian politics? Is, is what we say drawing people to Jesus or distracting them from Jesus? The priests weren't careful with what they were teaching. You know, if the question becomes, is what we're giving God good enough? It's the wrong question. We're going in the wrong direction. And that's all the law could do. It could only tell you the, the baseline, the, the lowest like, if, if you pass this line, then you've gone too far. How far can I go before I cross the line? Well, here's the law. You know what the law does? It shows us that none is good. No, not one. We can't maintain the law. We can't stay above it. We're constantly trespassing. That's a term for sin. We're crossing the line. We're missing the mark. We're transgressing. And if we're asking the question, is what we're doing good enough? We're asking the wrong question. We're missing the point. You know, the law only points out our sin, so we need to look at this differently. We need something that fulfills the law. We need something to complete the law. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son. That's Romans chapter 8. Steve mentioned that last Sunday. God gave us the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. The only thing to fulfill the law, the only one to fulfill the law, Jehovah Jireh, my God, provided the only way to come to him, the only thing that would accomplish the law, and that is Jesus Christ. He gave us his best. He is the best. We need to respond by giving our best. Question number three. Are you with me? Okay. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? You know, at this point, if I were God, I would just want to beat my head against a wall, right? Did, did you miss the rest of the conversation? Like, do I need to spell it out for you? Let me give you another example. So here's another example. Why does he not regard our offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You know, besides the fact that you're bringing me animals that are missing parts and eyes and are sick and lame and can't see, 
and you're just getting rid of them because you've got to get rid of them anyway, so might as well sacrifice them to God, and you're calling that good enough. And besides that, you're teaching false things about me, and you're not upholding my name. Let's talk about your relationships. You divorced your wives so that you could chase after foreign wives and foreign gods. You neglected the wife of your youth and left her so that you could chase after foreign gods and foreign women. And you're calling me unfaithful? You're wondering why I'm not regarding your sacrifice? This is nothing new. We see it throughout the Old Testament. When, when God's people first came into the promised land, they were told to cleanse it. And they didn't. The high places remained. They didn't tear them down. They left the ashram. They left the false gods. They didn't totally purify it. They embraced it. Israel is God's covenant people, and he's jealous for them. He fights for them. He loves them. He wants them. Our relationship with God is pictured in a number of different ways. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. God is our Father. We are his children. We are adopted. We are grafted in. None of those things are to be separated. None of those things are ever to be cut or separated by man. And when they are separated, it's always initiated by mankind. Always. God never changes. He never breaks his promise. We are the ones who walk away from God. It's the history of the Old Testament. You know, one way this creeps into our lives, and we see this all the time. I catch myself saying things that tie into this. We compartmentalize our faith. We add a little bit of Jesus to our life. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I have faith. Yeah, faith is important to me. Yeah, it's, it's part of my life. You know, I got my church friends over here, and I got my work friends over here, and I'm compartmentalizing my faith. It's just a part of my life. But Jesus is important to me. Faith is important to me. Just a part of my life. But the thing about marriage is, it's a full commitment, isn't it? Until death do us part, in sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth. Marriage is a full commitment. You're putting everything on the table. Nothing held back. Not just a part of my life. Not just evenings and weekends. Everything. Everything belongs to God. God, why aren't you paying attention to our offerings? Well, it's because you're not fully committed. You're unfaithful. You know, it's a scary thought to consider just how many people in North America sit in a church most every Sundays, but have never fully committed their lives to Christ. How many people listen to the gospel, but they never make a commitment? Maybe, maybe they think just sitting in the building is enough. God's jealous for you. He wants you. He doesn't just want the good part of you. He wants all of you. He wants your whole heart. Nothing held back, fully committed. You see, the people had returned to the land, but they hadn't returned to their God. Question number four. We'll make this one short and sweet. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now we know that God never grows weary or tired. He never grows slack. But they're trying his patience. They're testing his patience. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Just that far. No, they were really trying God's patience. I mean, how twisted do you have to get the gospel to think if we pursue evil, we're going to receive more blessing? Right? That's pretty backwards. But yet, King David says in Psalms, why do the wicked prosper? Why, why does God allow evil and suffering? Why does it seem like people who are involved in that seem to be living such lush lives? What incredible patience God has to put up with us. I'm so thankful that his mercies are new every morning. Question number five, moving right along. The last part of verse 17, Malachi 2, 17. God says, or by asking, where is the God of justice? I love this. I can just picture God seeing this and taking it as like the perfect segue. Where's the God of justice, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Well, let me show you. I have something planned. I have something in the works. I'm about to provide something that is going to totally fulfill the law and bring complete and sure justice. 
You just wait and see. Oh, man, it's coming. It's coming. 4,000 years of watching you fail and fall short. Here's what I'm going to do to see justice served. Look at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 4 carries similar themes. Behold, I send my messenger. That's the Hebrew term Malachi. And he will prepare the way before me. In case you haven't connected the dots, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy like to a T. Chapter 4 talks about Elijah that would come, and Jesus calls John the Baptist the Elijah that has come. It's John the Baptist preparing the way. You remember Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist preparing the way. We're going to be talking about John the Baptist real soon, and then Jesus is going to arrive in physical form in the New Testament in just just a short while. It's really exciting. The whole Old Testament has been pointing towards this. I jumped a few verses there. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. I'll send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger, that's the Hebrew term Malachi again, of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. That's Jesus Christ instituting a new covenant. The old covenant of the Old Testament, the law, it could only point out sin. It couldn't save people. The new covenant is based on grace. For by grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by grace. It's a new covenant of grace in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is issuing in a new covenant as we arrive into the New Testament, which builds on the old covenant. The law points out the sin. Jesus came to forgive and to give grace for that sin, to pay the price. Jehovah Jireh, God is providing his son. You want to talk about God bringing justice. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5. Then I will draw near to who? You, you ask and you shall receive. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I think the people were like, uh, you're going to do what, God? Like, we're, we're asking for your justice but we're asking for your justice against those people, right? The evil people who are prospering in the world. You need to enact justice on them. Bring to them what they deserve. But you're coming near to us? You see, they had, they had the law. They knew better. They were more guilty than the nations who didn't have the law. They were guilty. Look, we can sugarcoat it. Many people do. Many churches do. But here's the truth. Not one of us can attain the law. We've all fallen short. We've all crossed the line. We've all missed the target. The Bible calls that sin. The only payment for your sin is through shed blood. The Old Testament is full of shed blood. Sacrifice and sacrifice. A lamb sacrificed until the sinless, spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, took our iniquity, took our shame, took the punishment of our sin on himself on the cross. You remember when we went through Isaiah, the suffering servant. He took our iniquities on him. Jesus Christ. What the law was powerless to do, God did through the provision of his son. Jehovah Jireh, God was providing his son. You know, the name Jesus is the Greek term for the Hebrew name Joshua. Just want to point that out because Joshua is such a great name. Don't you think so, Mike? Such a good name. (laughs) Jesus means God saves. God is my salvation. God rescues. Jehovah Jireh means God provides. Jehovah Jireh, Jesus. God provides rescue. That's the story of the Bible. God 
provides rescue. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We couldn't earn it. We don't deserve it. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for that law. 4,000 years of history, nobody could attain the law. And God says, look, I'm about to institute a new covenant built on the old covenant. The old covenant showed you you couldn't do it. The new covenant is going to show you that he did it. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And by placing your faith and trust in him and his finished work on the cross, that old covenant and law and all those things that you could never attain are forgiven and wiped clean. And you are given new life, an eternal life, a home. God is your father and entered into the family of Christ. A new covenant. God is going to do a new thing. Do you see the story that this argument is presenting as we've talked through these questions back and forth? God loves you. That was number one. Even when you choose not to see it or respond, our profanity and pollution of sin separate us from the God who desires us. That's question number two. God remains faithful even when we walk away. That's question number three. God is patient with us. Question number four. And God provides salvation for us. Number five. Isn't that the story of the Bible? Do you see how Malachi and this tough conversation between a father and his children just caps the Old Testament and everything that took place? You can't do it on your own. Without God, we're hopeless. God was going to provide the way. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Question number six. We got three more and 14 minutes to do so. So let's move right along. Malachi chapter three and verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The only reason that we are not snuffed off this planet right now is because God is so faithful and God is so good. He is totally righteous and just in removing us. You understand that, right? The only reason we're here is because his mercies are new every morning. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside. God didn't turn from them. They turned from him, from my statutes, and you have not kept them. And then I love this. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that the message of the Bible? Come back to me. Isn't that the prodigal son returning to his father, and the father is waiting and watching and running and embracing and giving the ring and killing the fatted calf and putting the cloak of purple on his son? Return to me, I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? How can we return? You know, the people had returned to the land. They had returned to build the wall. They had returned to build the temple. They had returned the feast. They had returned the sacrifice. They had returned the temple of worship. But they hadn't returned to God. How can we return to God? I think it goes back to Jehovah Jireh. God, my provider. Look at the story of the Bible. God provided a lamb to clothe Adam and Eve. God provided plans for an ark for Noah and his family in the animal kingdom. God provided a son for Abraham and Sarah. Then God provided a ram for Isaac. Then God provided for Joseph's release from the well. And God provided for his release from prison. God provided for the famine in Egypt. God provided for the release of the Hebrew people from Egypt. God provided manna. God provided quail. God provided drinking water. God provided direction in the wilderness. God provided victory in the promised land. God provided a king for his people. God provided judges for deliverance. God provided for his people's return from Babylon. Every time the people got themselves stuck and humiliated and in trouble and they cried out to God, God provided a way for his people. If the Old Testament has taught us anything, it has taught us that God provides for his people. You can't attain a relationship with God unless he provides a way. He's got to part the Red Sea. He's got to take out the giant with the stone. He has to provide a way, Jehovah Jireh. And God has provided a way for us to return. The disciple Thomas was asking a similar question. He was looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus says, famous words, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. God is a way maker. He provided the way, and that way is Jesus Christ, the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father. No one returns to God the Father except through me. You want to return to God? It's only through Jesus Christ. You can't pray enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't do your hair the right way. You can't follow the law. 4,000 years of history prove that. You need to come to God the Father through the only way that he provides, and that's Jesus Christ. Is that clear enough? That's the message that we preach here at Faith Baptist Church. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can have a relationship with God the Father, the forgiveness of our sins, new and abundant life, eternal life. It's only through Jesus. He is the way. The law doesn't get you to God. Seventh question. Question number seven. Malachi chapter three and verse eight. This seems like a twist. This seems like a turn, okay? Will man rob God? You see, I kind of thought uh, verse 7 would be a fitting conclusion, like return to me and I'll return to you. Okay, the story wraps up neatly. It's a good ending. But then God goes a little further. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Interesting. This, this is the part of the book, the, really the only part that I remembered. I've never preached on this book. I've never done a Bible study on this book. I've read through the book numerous times, never, never done too deep of study. This is the only part that I remember. But it seems like a twist in the story, doesn't it? Here's how the people were robbing God. We've already established that every good and perfect gift is from above. Everything we have, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it. It's all a gift from the Father's hand. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. The baseline of the Old Testament law was a tithe of 10%. First fruits, the Old Testament calls it. Today we often refer to tithe as financial, but this was predominantly an agrarian culture. So let me tell you what they actually gave. I'm just going to read a few quick verses here. Exodus 23, 19. They gave the first of their first fruits of the land. Leviticus 27. They gave the first of the vegetables of their land. Numbers 18, 12. All the best of the oil, the best of the wine, the best of the grain, the first fruits is what they gave to the Lord. Deuteronomy 18, 4. The first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. Leviticus chapter 3, unblemished animals, the best animals, a lamb, a goat. Leviticus 7, cake. I like that one, don't you? Wafers, meat, oxen, sheep, goat. You see, the tithe was not just 10% of the coins that they had in their pocket. The tithe was all the things that God had blessed them with. The first 10% of whatever came in in the harvest, whatever came in from shearing the sheep, whatever came in in the wine, the oil, the grain, all of these things, they were to give the first 10% of the harvest back to God. The first 10%. Why are we talking about this right now? Why did the conversation go to tithes and contributions? I mean, the people were asking, how do we return to God? So why are we talking about tithing? You know, you know what I think tithing does? I shouldn't say I think. You know what I know tithing does? It tests our faith, doesn't it? It's a pretty clear metric, a pretty clear like dashboard, visual, barometer, thermometer of our faith, isn't it? God, I trust you this much. Right? Because that's what the people were doing. God, I'm going to bring my lame and exhausted and sick and blind animals and give that to you because ah, that's how much I trust that you're going to provide for me. You're testing my faith, but I'm not really willing to test that you're going to provide for me if I really step out on a limb, if I really give it all to you. If I really fully commit, I don't know if you're really going to provide for my needs. It's a test of our faith, isn't it? Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. Let me tell a little story about a conversation Jesus had. I'm just going to read it because I think that'd be faster than giving my version of it. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know this guy is the rich young ruler. We know he's financially minded because he's talking about inheritance. He's talking about earnings. Verse 19, 
Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The Old Testament shows us that. 4,000 years, nobody could make the law. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Listen to his response. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. Yeah, sure, okay. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, because Jesus always gets right to the heart of the matter, right? He can see right into this guy's heart. He knows exactly what anchor is stuck in his heart, not allowing him to follow Jesus. So he says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Sometimes I think it's easier for rich people to give to God, but this story kind of paints a different picture, doesn't it? Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go through the kingdom of God, which is either literally a camel fitting through a needle, or there was an opening in the side of the wall around Jerusalem where for a camel to get through, they had to take all of the possessions off its back so it could kneel down and fit through after the gate had been closed at dusk. Either or. Little trivia for you. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? That sounds so difficult. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible for God. Praise God for that. And Peter said, I don't know if he's trying to toot his own horn here, but he says, see, we have left, these disciples, we've, we've left our homes and we've followed you. You remember James and John, they left their father Zebedee on the beach. They left the nets, they left the fish, they left the boats, they left the family business and walked away. Look at what we've left. Look at the cost it's been to fully commit to you, Jesus. Verse 29. Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, brothers, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I love that story. The degree to which we are willing to give to God is a direct indicator of our faith and trust in God. I mean, it's a different way of saying the same thing. How much do you trust God? You know, God doesn't want your stuff. God wants you. And I've got two minutes left, so I better get to this illustration here. You know, you know what? Many of us, when we, when we first start out in our faith, we start small, right? Like, I'm not going to start by giving 100%. I'm going to start by testing this out a little bit, trying it just a little bit. So you know what? There's your life. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. Everything we have is because of God's grace. And when God asks you to give back to him in tithe, we start out with uh, an eighth of a teaspoon. Let's try that. Okay, so I'm going to take an eighth of a teaspoon of my life. That's about, let's say, 16 grains of rice. And I'm going to give it to God. There you go. And then here's, here's the part I love. I was talking to Sean about this. We went out to breakfast the other morning, and he was demonstrating this idea with the sugar and the spoon, so it's his idea, in case you don't like it. <laughs> but look, I, I've given to God an eighth of a teaspoon, and then God says that he's going to open the window of blessing. We haven't got there yet. We're about to read it. And he's going to pour out on us so great a blessing. I'll clean that up, I promise. <laughs> that we're not going to have any more need. Right? Let's read a little further here. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And God says something here that he doesn't say anywhere else in the Bible. This is a one-time only statement, which should mean it's pretty significant. And thereby put me to the test. The only time in Scripture that I'm aware of that God invites us to put him to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you 
and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, your vine. Verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You know what? God invites us to test him. When we started, we started with a small amount, but maybe we we work our way up to a full teaspoon here, and we get a full teaspoon, and we give it to God. And then God says, put me to the test. See if I'm not Jehovah Jireh, the provider. I'm going to fill every need of yours until there is no more need. I want to read a few more verses. I read this one the other day. I'm reading through the book of Proverbs. Each month this year, my word for the year is wisdom. I want to be more wise. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10. I know I'm backing up a bit. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Another great Sunday school song. I love that verse. I never knew the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. You know what, God? I'm going to step up my giving here because I don't want to trust in my money. I want to trust in you. So I'm going to go full tablespoon right here. I'm working up to 10%. I'm giving it to you. And God, you've invited me to put you to the test. You are Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. I'm not going to have any more need. And God fulfills my needs. I put him to the test. He tests my faith, what I'm willing to give up. And I test his provision, how he cares for my need. Oh, I'm jumping all over the place here. Let's look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Jesus says this, Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, before you think we're getting all prosperity gospel, like if I give the church 100 bucks, God's going to deposit 115 into my bank account. That's not the case. Because I'm making room for God's blessing. Every, every time I step up my giving and I, I give God just a little bit more of myself, oh man, let's, two-thirds of a cup, let's, let's calm down here a little bit. Give a quarter of a cup to God. Whoa, that was, that was a quarter of a cup right there. And I give that to God. The measure with which I give will be measured back to me, except this time it's shaken down, pressed down, shaken together, pouring over, running into my lap. And God returns it to me. I didn't leave myself enough time to explain all of this. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. This is Paul talking. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do we truly believe that? Do we truly believe in Jehovah Jireh that God's going to meet my needs? We don't give so that we can receive back from God. But God blesses and lavishes upon us. And with the measure that we use to measure out, he returns the measure back to us. So if I'm too busy with my little, uh, where was it there, my eighth of a teaspoon giving because I only trust God this much, I'm only ever going to receive this much of God's blessing and God's mercy and truth and love and grace in my life because I'm not willing to step up in my faith. If we were really willing to give it all for God, do you think, do you, just think about this for a moment. If we were really, oh man, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pour the whole thing here. If we were really willing to give it all for God, just like dump the whole thing in, do you think that Jehovah Jireh is provider enough? I'm going to clean this up, I promise, Laura, sorry. Do you really think that with the measure we use to give, God will return his grace and mercy and every good and perfect gift from above until it's pouring over in our lives? Do you truly believe that? 
look, I'm not, I'm not saying you're going to get rich. I'm not saying you're going to have the best health. I'm saying God's grace in your life is in many different areas. God's grace might look like a semi-truck in your car. But God's grace in your life, God will supply all of your needs in riches in Christ Jesus. And I've gone five minutes over. That's what happens. That's what happens. <laughs> Would you stand with me as we pray today? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are today. God, we thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, that you do meet our needs. God, our needs might be financial, they might be health, they might be relationships. Our needs might be spiritual and emotional. God, we truly believe that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. God, help us to show forth our faith by being willing to give you, starting with the first tenth of what you've blessed us with, because it's yours already. Why would we think for a moment that it belongs to us, that we earned it or that we deserve it? It's a gift from above. We don't get to take it with us when we die. God, help us not to be like that servant who buried that coin in the ground because he was so scared to lose it. He wanted to hold on to it so tightly so that he could return it when his master returned. God, help us to invest what you blessed us with. God, you bless us so that we can be a blessing. You don't bless us to make our bank accounts rich. You don't bless us to make us physically fit or to have the best-looking family. God, you bless us so that we can be a blessing to the world. We are ambassadors of Christ. God, throughout the book of Malachi, you keep mentioning the other nations, that they will see us and they will be blessed, that they will look on Israel and see God's blessing, see that God is the great provider, and they will know that we trust in a God who can meet all of our needs. God, I pray for the one today who's unwilling to give anything, whether it's their time, whether it's their energy, whether it's their money, whether it's the possessions that you bless them with. Maybe there's a specific situation in their mind right now where they know that they can meet somebody's need. Somebody needs firewood right now, and they have firewood sitting in the backyard for the next three years. God, help them to be willing to give. God, with whatever measure we're using right now to give, help us to step up our game because we know that you are the great provider. Help us to live like we know it and we truly believe it. God, thank you for how you've provided for us. Thank you that you provided Jesus Christ and that he is the rescuer, that he paid for our sins, that he bought our, our price, our redemption price to return to God. Thank you so much that you have provided a way, Father. If there are those here who have not made that decision, Maybe they've sat in this building for a while. Help them to know that just because we're in this building doesn't mean we're a Christian, doesn't mean we're a follower of God. Help us to fully commit to give our lives to Christ. Maybe there are those here today who need to make a fresh commitment. God, I pray that we would make that commitment, that we would be all in. God, I thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. I pray that decisions would be made today, Father, and conversations would be had. Thank you that we're in the New Testament next week. Thank you that we get to read about the very life and ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. We thank you so much for the gift of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.